Welcome to America, the Beautiful Game, a podcast about soccer in the United States and its relationship with Europe. Each week, Dan Rudstein, head of international at Orange County Soccer Club, sits down with a new guest to talk about a different aspect of the beautiful game on or off the field. Welcome back to America, the Beautiful Game, and this will be a particularly fascinating podcast, I think, because we have a man who some people may have heard of as an author, but for me, most importantly, he is a real, real football fan, and like me, a part owner of AFC Wimbledon. Welcome to the podcast, John Green. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So... It's a tricky one here to know where to start because this podcast is about football in Europe and it's about football in America. And you support Liverpool, you part own AFC Wimbledon, obviously support them, but you also have some very strong views on American soccer. Um, so do you want to start talking positively about European football or derogatively <laughs> about American soccer? You choose. Well, I have lots of negative things to say about European soccer, too, if if that will uh, make the American fans uh, dislike me less. But yeah, let's start. Let's start with MLS. There's a lot I like about MLS, but there for me is a problem baked into the architecture, which is that there is nothing at risk. It's the same problem that the European Super League had, which is that for me, Football competition is much less meaningful when there is no real risk. And without relegation, no matter how bad an MLS team is, they will always be an MLS team. So, British person saying that, I mean, you know, see, I work for a second tier American soccer team. So the fact that even if we win the championship, we can't go up a level is particularly painful. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I live in a city with a second tier uh, soccer team, and I feel like we should be able to be promoted up to MLS if we're good enough. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the team we both own in the UK have been promoted nine times. Yeah. In, you know, a relatively short history. But I guess lots of British people have this view, but you're an American. So you will have grown up with NFL and baseball and hockey, where not only is promotion and relegation not a thing, it's not even a on the edges of conversation because you're either, you know, no one expects a G, no one's complaining that the G League teams can't get right. promoted to the NBA. So how have you managed to be an American who feels that relegation should exist? I guess for me, it boils down to what I actually think about larger economic systems and who should own the thing in question. And with sports, if you think about, for me, if you think about what a sports team is at its core, it is not the players who change. It is not the manager or the coaches who change. And it is not even the individual, this individual fan or that individual fan, because we will all grow up and grow old and die. And there will be a new generation of Wimbledon supporters who come after us. The, the club, the, the, the team is its community. It is the group of people who care about it. And so when those assets are, are controlled, especially when they're controlled in a super monopolistic way by individuals, even though the value of the club is in its community, that troubles me. That troubles me also when I see it happen outside of sports. But for, for me there should at least be fan representation on boards. There should at least be 
fan representation at the highest levels in the decision making of the club. And I'm not sure that like if MLS had that, I think it would be a much stronger league. I think it would have a better long-term chance to have a really good long-term relationship with, with its fan communities. And the same is true of USL and, and other leagues, but I would still be troubled by the fact that being bad has no punishment. Like there, there has to be something at stake for the teams at the bottom as well as the teams at the top. And that that's what makes football in Europe special, I think. And I think if the U.S. embraced that, even though it would involve some billionaires putting their assets at greater risk than, than the assets currently are, the potential upside would be much, much bigger. I think that within five or 10 years of a promotion relegation system in the U.S., that football... Um, European football soccer could be the biggest sport in America because I think every community, every city would have a team in that pyramid and every city would have excitement and a feeling of real connection to the game. So I I think it would be great for the game. I understand that from if I were a billionaire who owned an asset that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars and, and would be worth less in, in a case of relegation, why? I would push back against that, but I'm not a billionaire. So I feel quite comfortable advocating for it. So obviously I I think I 100% agree with everything you've said, but just, I guess the, the challenge question to that is, you know, if you go to MLS games here, and this does, definitely does not apply to every stadium, but, you know, Atlanta United is apparently one of the best fan experiences. I've been to LAFC. It's a beautiful stadium. They've sort of stolen the best bits of Borussia Dortmund's fan experience and built an amazing thing here. But when a football team's 150 years old, this doesn't matter. But when you're building a new team in a modern world, nobody's going to build a stadium and invest in it the way that they have if they were worried that they get relegated and their value gets halved. So that's you true. Can, you, you, can, you can sort of understand it. So would the product actually be better if there was promotional relegation? Or would there just be, the fans would love it more, but the stadia would be less impressive and maybe a lower quality of player? Yeah, and I think that is that is the big concern. I, I would advocate for a completely different way about thinking about how we build stadiums and who owns them. Because in the US right now, we have this weird system where stadiums are built in large part, usually with tax dollars, but then they're owned in large part, usually by individuals. And I think that's the wrong way to model it. I do think that ownership groups who come together and make big investments in clubs should see some upside to that investment. Um, and, and if that includes infrastructure investments, they should see upsides to those investments. But I think there are ways to do that without having absolute monopolistic control in the hands of the individuals or, or the corporations that, that own the football clubs. Like, I think there are ways, we know that there are ways to build beautiful stadiums without uh, huge amounts of investment from billionaires, because like, that's how the stadium in Indianapolis got built. Uh, that's how like most NFL stadiums got built was with public money. Yeah. So given you have rightly strong views on this, but also you support Liverpool Football Club. And I know. You know, know, you were as passionate, as excited as anybody when, you know, they won the Champions League, when they won the league. You know, you love Klopp for all the reasons that everyone does, because he's mostly because he's authentic, all that stuff. How did you feel when 
they were part of the evil six? Well, before I answer that question, let me preface it by saying that I might be wrong about MLS and I might be wrong about this and I might be wrong about everything. Like I am, I am often wrong. And one of the pleasures of being 43 years old is being able to look back at all of the past me's who were wrong about so many things. I often wonder like, what is what am I as wrong about today as I was wrong about how great Twitter was gonna be for the social discourse in 2011? So bear all of that in mind. I, I might be wrong, but my feeling about when, when Liverpool joined the European Super League, it was really two feelings. One was disgust, and the other was absolute, genuine shock that the powers that be at Liverpool Football Club, that the ownership structure, that everyone who was involved in that decision clearly did not even, did not attempt in even the smallest way in even the subtlest way to consult with any fan of the football club or, or, or even apparently the players or the manager. It was, it was such a bad idea that they, and, and the shock for me was that they thought that we were going to like it precisely because we couldn't get relegated out of this new super league precisely because it was going to be some kind of paradise from which there was no expulsion. They thought we would like that. And that's such a fundamental misunderstanding of the fan community, especially in Liverpool, like especially, you know, the, the geographic based fan community, but also the international fan community. Like there was no way that was ever going to fly. And so it just, it, it, it emphasized for me how big the gap is between the, the core of the club, which is the people who care about it, and the ownership structure of the club. Now, I am very grateful to FSG for investing in Liverpool. I remember the Hicks and Gillette days. I remember how close Liverpool was to, you know, the real crisis, potentially going into administration, lots of other potential problems. And I don't want to. I don't want to minimize how, like I, I think in the current world of football, to be successful at that level, you need smart owners. And I think we've had smart owners. But oh my gosh, this was a big miss. Like what a miss! How could? How did they think it was going to work? Yeah, it. I, I think Liverpool's a funny one because I'm not a Liverpool fan. I'm a Wimbledon fan only in the way that British people tend to only have one team, but. Liverpool's the ground I've been to the most in the last few years. So my last company pre-pandemic uh, had a box at Anfield and I went there a lot and I got to know the people there and the story of Liverpool, some of the history and obviously the sad history like Hillsborough. There's something about Liverpool fans that is different. And Klopp being the sort of manager he is, even Jordan Henderson being the sort of person he is and the way he behaved in relation to sort of some pandemic things around players' wages and so on. Like they feel like good people doing good things. And the fact that their team signed up for that did seem very strange. That Because you almost know that Klopp probably would have resigned over it. And yeah. the players might have gone on strike. So it almost felt worse with Liverpool than with Man City and Man United, who are different in their position in, Amer in UK football. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there's still, you know... It, 
a lot of a lot of this stuff is is grounded in in history and and in those communities in ways that American fans can't fully get their heads around. And I don't want to pretend to speak for Liverpool fans in Liverpool. I don't know what that experience is like. But from my perspective, it was it was so obvious, like the that nobody was going to like it. That the only the the only people who benefited from it were the people who didn't want to have their assets at risk. And that's just not that's just not how it works. Like you got to play your way in. And even the players want to play their way in. And and so I I, I think there's just a huge disconnect between what fans want from these competitions, what players want, what the communities want, and what the ownership wants. Because the ownership wants to maximize revenue. Like it's easy to forget this because corporations do an incredibly good and sophisticated job of creating brand awareness and making us think that, you know, they're 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 doing something other than their fundamental thing. But the fundamental thing that they do is maximize revenue and minimize cost. Like they don't corporations don't really exist for a secondary purpose. And it's a bummer to be reminded of that. And I felt like uh, Liverpool's ownership kind of kind of showed their cards that you know they're they're in business. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a tricky thing, and I think there's a difference between American and British fans around this. So in America, you know, you could wake up one day if you're living in Atlanta. You wake up one day, you know, a few years ago, and suddenly somebody's built an amazing stadium, and your team are playing in the MLS, and you've signed some great players, and you might win the league and get to the finals. Amazing. In Britain. Obviously, I'm not saying that everybody watched their teams when they were bad because some teams have been in the Premier League for years. So you would have grown up. But somebody in your family would have watched the teams when they were bad. And I think knowing I've got friends who are Manchester City and Leeds fans. And when those teams were in the third tier, they were still getting 30,000. And the fans, in some weird way, enjoyed their League One days. And obviously, they're enjoying winning things. But it feels more earned you know yes getting to a Champions League final when you were playing in League One you know 15 years ago feels different and even as an AFC Wimbledon fan I feel a measure of guilt so I've been away from England nearly the entire existence of our football team and you know I've been to about four games because I live abroad and I you know I flew in for our Wembley trip I did a 72-hour trip from LA to London to watch us beat Plymouth to get promoted. And there was a part of me, I mean, I had a great time. And I'm, I'm a real Wimbledon fan. I had a season ticket at the old Wimbledon when I was a kid. But there was a part of me, even when I was at that game, I felt guilty because all the other AFC Wimbledon fans there had been at the Seagrave Haulage Combined Counties League games right. playing against Chessington and Hook United in front of 200 people. And I'd skip that and just come in for the Wembley part. So yeah. it, it's tricky. Even I feel guilt and we're still a low level. I feel the same way, actually. I often feel like, you know, I I, I kind of bought into the Wimbledon idea uh, after after it had succeeded, you know. And so whenever I'm at the club and people are like, oh, you know, thank you for, for what you do for the club. I always think to myself, like, y'all should really be thanking the people who helped you get out of the seventh tier because, it, you know, it's easy once you're in the football league, once you're in the top four divisions of, of English football, things are a heck of a lot easier. Um, you know, the revenue calculations just just are more straightforward. And 
Not that it's easy. I mean, I, Wimbledon have stayed in League One by the, the skin of their teeth for four consecutive or however many seasons it has been. So it is clearly not easy. And every year it's a miracle. And every year I, I, I don't think that we can do it again. But uh, somehow, you know, they keep finding a way. So, but yeah, I feel the same way sometimes. That said, I do, um, I am really, I don't know how you feel about it. I am so excited to go to AFC Wimbledon's new stadium that, was built by the fans at, you know, just tremendous, just a tremendous, really 30 year effort to build this stadium and a a true community effort, including, you know, having a a bond where fans can loan money to the club at, at low interest rates. And then the club pays them back over time, all kinds of ways to figure out how are we going to have this community pay for a world-class football stadium and they've done it they've pulled it off and i cannot wait it was amazing to go to uh to go to and see wimbledon at at king's meadow and and see the um you know see the smallest stadium in the football league but i am really excited to see them uh at 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 home yeah it is an extraordinary it's an extraordinary so i can't wait to go back you know i went to the old plow lane many times when i was a kid before we had to go and watch them play at Crystal Palace. Yeah. But a friend of mine lives in Wimbledon and he texted me the other day saying, oh, I'm going to get vaccinated at Plough Lane because obviously it's a vaccination site and he's a Fulham fan. But he was so excited and was telling me about it. And when, you know, they didn't go on the pitch, obviously, <laughs> you know, at least it was at the complex. And he was like sending me pictures and stuff. And it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story. And it's, I guess it, it, it's tricky for people to really understand over here, particularly because I often, when people say which team do you support, and I don't say Manchester United, this is like normal Americans, and I say oh, I support an AFC, we play in the third tier, and I have to explain we have tiers. Right. For you, I guess, particularly in this weird world, a lot of people will know you as best selling author, you know, YouTube sensation, all of that stuff. That's who you are to them. So, how do you explain to people that not only are you a huge sports fan, huge football fan, but also you support this weird team who are playing a division that sort of doesn't exist in America? And not only that, there's also a whole story behind them, which is just more than any other team in the UK. Yeah, if you really need like 20 minutes, and if you've ever been at a dinner party with me, you've experienced this 20 minutes where... Uh, I, I corner someone and I'm like, let me tell you about the time that a uh, football club was wrenched from its community and, and moved to Milton Keynes. And then the fans of that football club restarted in the bottom rungs of amateur football and worked their way back up and made it back into professional, the professional tiers. And now they're, now they have a new stadium that they, that they built themselves. And the whole time the club has been owned by its fans and it still is and it's still all the decisions are made by these by groups of people voting together uh and you know and i can tell the 20 minute version of the story and i will every time i get the chance but i guess when i'm asked about it in in a shorter straightforward way i always just say that i support a team that's in the third tier of english football that's owned by their fans because to me that's the important thing and that's what you know that's why my brother and I have wanted to sponsor Wimbledon for a, a, so long and, and also why like, you know, our family 
puts money into the club because we we believe in that model of ownership, but we also believe in kind of spreading the good news of that model of ownership and showing people that it that it can work. And you know, we like you, Dan, I feel guilty for not being involved in every step of Wimbledon's process. But what I try to tell myself is that everybody has a different set of assets or or skills that they bring to this community, that they bring to the football club. And for me, a big part of that is PR. Like I got a podcast where I talk about the news from AFC Wimbledon every week. And I, you know, talk about it to on, on YouTube and all that stuff. And part of it is money. Like, you know, we have money that we can invest in the club. Um, but other people have different assets and different skills. And those are just as just as important, if not, if not more important. I think about the, you know, the people who the groundskeepers. Uh, at at the old stadium, who for years were 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 volunteers, or I think about uh, Eric Samuelson, the club uh, chairman, who o- ran the football club for a zero dollar or I guess one guinea a year salary. You know, I mean that that's incredible, and and so so many people are so deeply committed to this community, and that's what makes it special. That's what makes it amazing. Like it is not ultimately about whether or not a ball goes over a a line that some person painted. It is ultimately about this feeling of being in it together and and each of us bringing what we have to the community. And so that's what I love about it. So this is a a test of your, not football knowledge, but of your football passion. So I'm going to give you four options. Given that you're not an unsuccessful writer and obviously some of your, um, a couple of your books have been made into films. So I'm going to give you four options. Number one, your latest book becomes a film and has to win an Oscar, but it it wins an award or at least does incredibly well at the box office. Number two, your next book is even more successful and stays top of the book charts for even longer. Number three, Liverpool win the, let's say the treble. Let's not get carried away. You don't need to do a quadruple. Or number four, I don't want to say AFC Wimbledon don't get relegated because, but <laughs> AFC Wimbledon make it back to the Premier League. So for me, this is not th- that difficult. It's very easy to dismiss the ones about my book and 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 a, and a movie for me because I've had plenty of luck in my uh, in my in my professional life and and I feel very grateful for it and. I, I don't I don't feel unfulfilled in any way, whereas I do feel deeply unfulfilled as a sports fan all the time. <laughs> I I think I have to go with Wimbledon getting back to the Premier League. It would be, I mean, it would just be so so special. Honestly, even getting promoted up to the championship and being able to make the case that a football club run this way with this kind of limited resources can still you know, work its way up into the top echelon of really world football. I mean, the championship, the second tier of English football is, I mean, it's one of the 20 or 25 best leagues in the world, probably. So yeah, I I would go with that for sure. I mean, that would be, oh, I mean, you know, like I I guess winning an award or whatever would feel really good for like a, a book or a movie. But I remember that day, that Wimbledon got promoted against Plymouth and being at Wembley and then going back to the stadium with my dad and just being with my dad in that moment was, was one of the best 
memories of my whole life. And then my dad had actually never been to the stadium before. So like after seeing Wimbledon at Wembley, we walk out onto the pitch at Kings Meadow and he is like, this is it. They play here on every Saturday. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, what they just accomplished is incredible. Like that was the moment that it hit home for him being in a stadium that seats 2000 people and thinking, wow, they just won a game at Wembley in front of 60,000 people. It was incredible. What a moment. Yeah, it's interesting. So I took my my old man to the game as well. So my dad doesn't like football, but he took me when I was a kid because I did. And he used to watch me play mm-hmm. every week. He used to watch me referee, which is even much... I can't imagine watching a child referee being even in remotely rewarding, but he did. I watch my, I watch my son referee now. Is that right? It's stressful. It's actually more stressful than when he's playing. Yeah, I think it is, particularly when large men shout at you. Yeah, um, yeah. a lot to me. But... I, I flew back. I took my old man to the game because he wouldn't let me go to the FA Cup final in 1988 because I was 11. Oh, wow. Because um, I was like, you know, I was 11, which is fair enough. Yeah. And Wembley yeah. is scary when you're 11. Um, and, you know, who would have thought we wouldn't get back to Wembley for another 30 years? I mean, I took him. I, think I bought like a dozen tickets. I invited a lot of my mates who support real teams, Derby and Fulham and so on. And we all came and we had this extraordinary, because I've been living away for 10 years and we had this amazing day. Now, we didn't obviously go back to Kings Meadow, but... The memories of that day, it's it's hard to describe. Um, I've got friends who support real teams and who get to finals of competitions every season, you know. And obviously nowadays, if you get to the semi-final of the FA Cup, you get to go to Wembley as well. So I don't think they really get, like going to Wembley once every 30 years is very different from going to Wembley every other season or sometimes yeah. three times a season. Yeah, and being able to celebrate that with family and with close friends, it's just there really is nothing like it. Like, it's not like winning an award for one of my books, which is lovely, but doesn't feel, doesn't have that same sense of like connectedness to this huge group of people. I mean, I felt, you know, I, in that, in that crowd, I always feel comfortable and which is interesting because I never feel comfortable in crowds, but Mm. in that crowd, I do. I just, um, it's just phenomenal. It would, that, that, that was one of the best days of my life. I actually flew directly from the Indy 500 here to London. We landed at like 11 o'clock in the morning. We went to a pub, we went to Wembley. And so it was just this like 48 hour day of pure magic. Just incredible. So where do you stand on sort of a lot of Americans rightly are obsessed with their players. It's a very American thing to be obsessed with their players. So everyone's excited about Pulisic and McKenna. Yeah. And, you know, they're filling the Champions League in a way they never have before. Yeah. Serginio Dest. Yeah, we've got great players. Are you... Actually, ironically, Liverpool fans are notoriously not that fussed about England. It's been one of the things of... It's a thing yeah. with Liverpool. But are you yeah. a passionate supporter of American soccer at the national level, men, men's and women's? I'm a very passionate supporter of the the women's national team. I think the way though the way that group of people have uh, worked to grow the game is incredible. And uh, from the players to uh, the the coaches, it's just a really special group of people. And it has been for a long time. Like it's held the same, uh, not just the same quality on the pitch, but like the same we're we're pushing for larger causes alongside playing playing football vibe 
really since the '90s, and so that's been awesome to see. Um, and I do I do care a lot about our our national team on, on the men's side as well. It's super frustrating for me to know how good our players are and how big our country is, and to not see the kind of success that I think we should be seeing. And it's hard. It's it's frustrating for me. And I mean, actually, the the day that the U.S. didn't qualify for the World Cup was the day that my book Turtles All the Way Down came out. And I came back from like a long day of doing stuff related to the book and doing like a tour event at night. And I came back and I just I, I just assumed that we were going to be fine because you can't not go to the World Cup if you're a nation of 330 million people who, you know, invest in soccer and care about it. And I, I was just devastated. I, and I honestly, I haven't gotten over that. And I don't think, and then we didn't qualify for the Olympics this time around. I just don't, I don't, and I know that was the under 23 team, but like, it's just, I don't think I'm going to be able to really get over it until we qualify for a world cup again. And then I think I'll be able to move on in my mind and be a full throated supporter of the team. But right now I'm just like, I feel anxious whenever I watch them. I just feel like, Oh God, how are we, how are we going to mess it up this time? It's very odd that, you know, obviously I'm a combination of being a Wimbledon fan and being an England fan. I'm used to sort of varying levels of disappointment. That's just a, you know, a football thing. But watching the Americans from the outside, it's strange because that day they lost to Honduras, you know, eight hours earlier, they'd beaten Northern Ireland. And I think Rayner had scored his first goal for the, well, sorry, scored, you know, scored the first goal. And you're like, what an amazing group of players. They're all over the Champions League. Some of the you know, genuinely better players in Europe, and then some of their teammates. And there's an argument you could have just flown them back, but they're you know, then some of their teammates lost to Honduras, but in a weird, sort of poorly coached, odd, like, yeah, system that's exactly way. it, right? It was not a it was not a player failure, it was a systemic failure, and that's actually been the story of American soccer for a really long time, you know. I mean, going back to the you know the world cups where we got zero points and finished with the lowest goal difference a, a lot of time obviously there have been a lot of periods where we didn't have the players and we just weren't good relative to most of the world but there have also been times when we were not as good as our players and we were not as you know we did not play as cohesively as other as other teams that um had had you know, inferior skill levels on the pitch. And that is the frustration for me. It's like the system we, and, and I know that lots of people are trying to fix this, but this uh, again and again and again, running into these like system problems, these coaching problems, these, uh, you know, just failure to do a good job of lining the players up in a certain formation, (laughs) you know, like coaching, coaching a formation and then playing that formation in the game, like, which seems to me a pretty basic, you know, pretty basic football thing. I guess going back full circle and we, you know, we started talking about greed at the beginning. I think some of it's better now, but was the obsession with making MLS work in order frankly, to increase its economic value at the expense of the development of the U.S. national team? 
For was, sure. I think it was. I think I think it I think it did, but I think maybe the long term will be beneficial. And I think maybe we're just starting to see that now. So the negative parts of me that have been heartbroken too many times by the men's national team feel like uh all of this was for nothing. We just we, we never get better. Our players get better, but our team never does. But I th- I think that is the wrong way to look at it because actually like the quality of American football players on the men's side has it's not just that it's never been this high. It's never even been close to this high, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's I, I remember when Landon Donovan played for Everton. I remember when Clint Dempsey played for Fulham, and they were really good players, but they were not on the edge of winning the Champions League. And I think there are, you know, probably five or six American players who could win the Champions League next year. And we've never been in that situation before. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, I know Zach Steffen was on the bench and Pulisic was on the bench and then came on and then unfortunately missed, I think, a sitter. Um, It's pretty easy. But still... Uh, you know, an American player had had to win the Champions League this year, or be in a Champions League winning squad, and I'd be amazed yeah. if that doesn't apply. Probably, you know, next year there'll probably be one in each of the semi-final teams. It's not impossible. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I'm broadly optimistic about the the trajectory. I just we just have to qualify for the World Cup. I mean, we have to. We, yeah. That's that's. We don't have to do anything at the World Cup, but we have to qualify. Will you, when obviously you get automatic qualification when you host it, which is, yeah, you know, it shouldn't be the way you get in, but, but I'll take it. <laughs> have they got a chance of winning? Because that's in whatever it is, yeah. five years' time. I, I don't really, I, there's so there's part of me that says they have a chance of winning. But they really don't. I mean, if you look at, yes, we have we have players, we have seven or eight players who play at really big clubs in Europe. But as you said, not all of them start. Um, and certainly not all of them are the first name on the team sheet. Because if you look at Germany, you look at France, even you look at Brazil, I mean, Brazil has players at most big football clubs. Brazil has players who were first on the team sheet at many of the biggest clubs in the world. So we're a ways away from that. If they, you know, if we learn to play well together and, and, and if over the next five years, this group of players is pretty consistent and pretty cohesive and, and grows in confidence, I, I think anything is possible. I will say even making it to like a semifinal, I think would be huge for the game here. I think that it's it's happening slowly. Like people say like, oh, it's amazing how many people go to MLS games. And it is. And it's amazing how many people go to USL games. And it's wonderful. And it's happening. But it's happening slowly relative to how big I think it can be and how big it will be. Because it's a better game. <laughs> like it's a, it's a better game than the other games that we played. I, now I'm biased, but I believe that. And also because the world is becoming much more of a world. Like the the, the United States is is you know in in some ways, despite itself, more aware of the world outside of the United States, just because that's how information feeds and information flows work now. And so I think in 
in 10 years, there will be far more understanding of the game. There will be far more people who are interested uh, in, in, in playing the game and following it at a high level because I've seen that over the last 10 years. 10 years ago, when there was a highlight, a soccer highlight on SportsCenter, the anchors made fun of soccer every mm. single time. There was never a highlight without them being like, well, and then the game ended in a tie and that's not a real sport. And now they have to take it seriously because they know that that's a big percentage of their viewership and it's growing and I think it's gonna continue to grow. So I, I'm optimistic about the next 10 years, but if we could somehow get to a semifinal or a final in a big competition, it would be a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting that, as you say about the whole highlight thing, they did used to, it used to be a weird sport. You know, it'd be like now you're watching top 10 and it's, uh, what's it called? Frisbee golf whatever it's called, right. theory. Yes, like an incredible say, oh, disc golf shot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, weirdly, one of our players at Orange County ended up on the ESPN not top 10 because we had a golf day and he was driving, let go of his golf club and landed in, in some water. And obviously not, you know, exactly how we want to portray the club, but it was interesting that a footballer from a second-tier team on a golf day is legitimate enough as sport to make yeah. it onto... Sports Centre, which sounds like a weird thing to be pleased about, but actually it says a lot about where we are as a sport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think younger fans especially like just don't remember this, but when I was 13 years old and I played on my middle school, the reason I'm a Liverpool fan is that when I was 13 years old playing on my middle school soccer team, which was of course horrible, and I was of course the worst player on the pitch, but uh, we had one kid who was good. His name was James and he was from England. And James would tell us that like in England, thousands of people would go to soccer games and stand together and sing. And we would be like, no way. That's not, that's ridiculous. We didn't believe him. And, 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 and he couldn't present evidence to the contrary because there was no like YouTube to show off like, you know, football songs uh, sung from, from Anfield terraces or whatever. But James was like, yeah, it's a huge deal. And the best team in England is Liverpool. And that's that's why it happened to me. Uh, he could have said the best team in England is Everton or the best team in England is AFC Wimbledon. And I would have gone in that direction. So thank God for James. But that's how much it's changed. Like now nobody, now you know, like there's no middle schooler who's like, I don't believe you that there are lots of fans who watch this game in England. <laughs> extraordinary, extraordinary. So do you watch, you, you've, you mentioned you have a local USL team. Do, yeah. you, do you go? I do, yeah. Not, not, uh, not of late. <laughs> no, no, indeed. <laughs> but I have been... Um, I've been several times and I've taken my kids and it, it's the Indy 11 and there it's a lot of fun to watch. It's a really good, um, it's fun. Like the, the crowd is great uh, and the songs are great and it's a little taste of the game uh, from a, from a viewing perspective that otherwise my, my, my kids only get like once every other year when we go to England. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Cause I said, I, British football fans know their football. And, you know, when I started working for a, a USL team, my friends didn't know it existed. They didn't mm -hmm. know there was a second tier. <laughs> They're so ingrained in this American system that you can only yeah. have one league. But they, didn't, right. they didn't believe. But then, obviously, when they found out that there was no promotion relegation, they were sort of like, well, that's that's ridiculous. I think we we this year we weren't eligible for the US Open Cup. 
because they've had because of the pandemic they've all had to do it differently and i was really upset about it and my colleagues at work are like well it's you know it's only the open cup i'm like this is the only time in american soccer yeah. where it feels like british you know european soccer because theoretically a team not just in the usl a team in the the eighth tier who probably play in front of zero crowds and probably have to pay to play could theoretically get lucky twice and end yeah. up playing an MLS team and losing 15-0. But right. the magic of the cup. Yeah, I agree. I think the U.S. Open Cup is my favorite part of American soccer because it has, you know, everybody, everybody's got a chance and everybody's at risk. And that's the feeling that I love in, in football is, is a feeling of, like, stakes for everybody. 100%. And yeah. No, I, I, I love I love that that we're doing that now in the US and I hope that uh cup competition grows actually. Yeah, and you know, it's become a bit of a standing joke at work, but you know, if we win the USL, we don't get anything other than a nice trophy and a great day out. If we win the Open Cup, which for a USL team is not impossible because the crossover between USL and MLS is increasing. I think the top USL team could beat the middle MLS teams on Yeah. Day. Yeah, I but agree. If you win the Open Cup as a USL team, you get qualification for the CONCACAF Champions League. So Right. And then you're playing, yeah, then you're playing like Tigress and you're playing, uh, yeah. It'd be exactly. That feels like, you know, it, obviously I'm not suggesting that we should run a club differently, but it feels at the beginning of the season, it's like, right boys, try and win the league, but also right. but, the but, but really, we got to win the cup. Yeah. <laughs> if we win the cup, we're going to the Champions League. We're going to, I mean, that, that also that would just be a great story. But I think, and I think that's, maybe that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for is those, I love great stories in sports and promotion and relegation just create so many of them naturally. Now there are wonderful stories in American soccer as it is, you know, like that, um, that moment in the MLS playoff when the, when, when the, when the player was sent off for being off his line and then a, a different player came in and they didn't know how many penalties had been taken and the refs like messed everything up. But, the, but in the end, the outfield player made the save was a great, it had everything. It had widespread incompetence. It had uh, outfield players saving penalties, all of my favorite things to happen on a football field. So like, obviously it is possible, but I, I just... I I love I love those 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 incredible moments in sports that just where you know everything that seems impossible becomes possible. Wimbledon beating Liverpool in the FA Cup final, Liverpool finding a way to to, to achieve promotion via the playoffs from the National League. Like all that stuff is so powerful to me, and I just. I, I feel like we're 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 close to it in American football. We just need to like make those last few steps so that something is at stake and at risk. There's something to root for for every single team. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. Just sorry, talking of outfield goalkeepers. So this would have been before your time as a Wimbledon fan, but you've probably seen it. But some of my favorite sort of old footage of Wimbledon is when Vinnie Jones, our legendary player turned actor went in goal and I think it happened about three times in the days yeah. before you had sub goal and like him trying to be a goalkeeper and remarkably pulling off incredible saves and also letting terrible things through his legs is some of the best sort of 80s football footage I've ever seen yeah it's like a Benny Hill episode like he because he he makes some really good saves like some genuinely like that was not easy but then there are there are moments where he also like 
like fails at things that it, that you think like feel like a good eight year old would would have been able to do. Yeah. It's yeah, he's great. He's one of my he's probably my all time favorite outfield uh, goalkeeper. But that's one of my favorite things in soccer. I almost feel like there should be 10 minutes of every soccer game where there's an outfield goalkeeper because it's just so stinking fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. I'll be honest, I never thought I could have a conversation with an American about sort of 80s weird substitution rules. <laughs> um, it, it warms my I heart. Like it. Yeah, I mean, I I think partly because Wimbledon has done such a good job of uh, kind of keeping its history you know, through books and through like the, actually the chairman of AFC Wimbledon, Eric Samuelson has a new book out called All Together Now, which is an amazing, both an amazing history of the the club, but also like a really interesting glimpse into how the pure finances of how this stuff works at that, you know, in those kind of lower tiers of semi-professional and then the lower professional rungs of English soccer. And so I, I just love reading about it and, and watching old clips on YouTube. And now all of that's possible, like all the ways that I couldn't be a fan in the 80s or 90s when I was a kid and I was playing myself, I can be a fan now. And that's really that's one of the awesome things about like before we started recording, we were talking about how there are great things about social media but it feels like the terrible things often overwhelm them. But that is one of the really awesome things is that I, you know, you can be deeply connected with a club even when you're far away from it. Yeah. Just think what English James in your in your middle school football team could have shown you if you had a phone and at half time you could have shown you, you know, renditions of you'll never walk alone or yeah, oh, that would have beating you know, Wimbledon beating Liverpool, you might have ended up supporting the crazy gang, not the culture club. But very possible. So look, we it's a shame to reach the last question, but we have, I think, reached the last question. Now, the last question, you've you've already given the answer, I think, to what it will be. So you have to come up with something different. So our last question we ask every guest is if you could change one thing about American soccer, what would it be? Now, weirdly, only one person has said relegation in all the episodes of this, but you've already said relegation, so you're not allowed to say that. So, what all right, so other I have to pick a second thing about American soccer you would change that I would change. Uh, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay on the pitch. I don't. I don't like it. I know a lot of people are critical of like the the fan culture or handing out sheets for the how to sing the songs or whatever and i i think if you don't know the songs it's helpful to have sheet i don't know like how else are you going to learn them so i i i don't I, I i don't have a problem with any of that stuff and like i i think that in general actually the fans are what has made both mls and usl soccer really really good like i think that the quality of the play is good but i think it's the fans who have made that those 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 experiences special and those those clubs like to have a real meaning and, and impact in their community, even though most of them are, are relatively recent phenomena. And I think that's so lovely. That's a thing I would not change about uh, American soccer because I love that. I guess the thing that I would I guess the thing that I would change is I don't think kids should have to pay to play soccer. And I think we lose a lot of kids because of it. And I see that with my, my, my son's soccer league, um, and, and my daughters too, that, you know, we just, we just lose a lot of really wonderful kids and we, we lose the opportunity, forget about like losing pot potential future professional athletes. I'm not talking about that. I mean that we, you know, the, the, the other things that soccer brings us, 
you shouldn't have to pay to get them. You shouldn't have to pay to get fit. You shouldn't have to pay to be well coached. You shouldn't have to pay to be part of a team that helps you understand how teamwork works and how community works. Like that should be something that we find a way, a different way to fund. So that's the one thing I'd change. Yeah, it's fascinating. Actually, we've had two people say that already. And I it, it's I find it extraordinary. You know, you know, when I played for Epps Manual under 11s, I think we had to pay, but the pay was like £1.50 for our subs. Right. And that, you know, I think that like somebody bought some oranges with that, which we would eat at half time. Right. But it wasn't paying like here. I mean, it's a few hundred dollars a month, particularly in California. Um, and then all the money on top for tours and so on. It's- Traveling. Yeah. And if you want to be in the kind of elite levels, it's very expensive and it's extremely time consuming. And so it's asking a lot of parents who, in a lot of cases, don't have a ton of extra time to, and and I, I just think we we lose a lot of what's good about the game. And we know it's not necessary because we can look at other countries and see how they fund their youth soccer programs and see that they all figure out a way to do it that doesn't involve parents who can't afford to having to pay you know, hundreds of dollars a month to to be associated with an elite club. So I think that there is a way, and I actually think that progress is being made on that front, but it's just been brought home to me in the last few months as my kids have returned to in-person um, soccer that it's, you know, we just, we're, we're, we're losing, we're losing a lot, a lot of great kids um, from the game way too early. Absolutely. John Green, author but more importantly football fan (laughs) thank you very much for being part of this podcast oh it's been a true joy thanks for having me thank you for listening to america the beautiful game the obvious next step of course is to subscribe and also please join the conversation on twitter at abg soccer pod or visit the website on www.americabeautifulgame.com. But really, subscribing is the one you really want to do. Thanks for listening. All feedback welcome. 